Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers. Um, our our main text today is going to be what was on the screen during our time of prayer, and that's uh, Luke six thirty eight. But before we get there, I want to kind of talk about Mother's Day for a minute. You guys cool with that? So uh, some history in nineteen fourteen was uh, when. President Woodrow Wilson first made the Mother's Day in a national holiday. Um, it was he did this because of the lobbying of who is called the mother of the holiday, which I learned this this week. But Anne Marie Jarvis, she wanted to her and her mother wanted to have a day um, during the time of the Civil War to remember mothers. And so they lobbied and they petitioned them with the World Sunday School Association to make it a national holiday. There were still some states that were already participating in it, but Woodrow Wilson, Wilson made it official. Now, that was in 1914. By the time uh, 1920 rolled around, Anne-Marie Jarvis was sick of what it had become. <laughs> All right, now she, she created the whole tradition of giving carnations, right? So that when her mother passed away at the memorial service, she gave out different colors for different things. So she's the one that started that tradition. Fast forward, you get into the 1920s, and she's mad about how it's been commercialized. And um, she even makes comments about how you buy your mother's cards when you should be making them yourself. And she makes comments about you buy your mother's chocolate and candy, and then you eat all of it. And she's very upset with what Mother's Day has become, even to the point where there's a, a point in where she is arrested for disturbing the peace um, on during a Mother's Day carnation sale. She started a thing, and now she's causing a big scene because it's been used and abused and commercialized, right? So that's kind of the history of Mother's Day. And the truth is it has been commercialized. It's the third largest holiday for sending greeting cards, and it's second only behind Christmas in holidays where you give gifts. So Mother's Day has this complicated 
past, right? And this was good news for me because as I sat down to kind of prepare a message on Mother's Day, I realized, especially the older I get, it gets kind of complicated. I mean, not every mother-child relationship is great. There are, what if your mom relationship with your mother is complicated at best, maybe even estranged? What if you had a terrible mom? What if you don't know who your mom is? Or what if you're separated because your mom lives in a completely other country? This, this happens every day. People deal, are dealing with these thoughts on this holiday. What if you're mourning or remembering your mother because she's no longer here? That's something that our family is going through. The truth is, Mother's Day, just like the holiday itself, is full of complications. And I usually don't preach a Mother's Day message but for those reasons. But for some reason, when I was scheduling out the messages late last year, the Holy Spirit said to preach on Mother's Day. So that's what we're doing today. And I don't know why, but that's what we're doing, okay? And so what I did as I was praying through, seeking what I'm supposed to preach on, this was not easy to prepare, but I started with one question. Where do you go when life has become chaotic, complicated, or painful? That's, that's kind of the premise. It's, it's, it seems like there's this complication with the holiday. There's complication, complications when, with our own relationships and how that's to be navigated. And so that's what I wanted to answer. And as I was seeking and reading and preparing, I realized that there are many pastors before me who have preached Mother's Day sermons. And most, uh, not most of them, a lot of them have followed this outline where they share stories about mothers that are applicable to everybody, whether you're a mother or not. And so that's what I'm doing, okay? It doesn't originate with me. This isn't my creativeness. If, if the Holy Spirit stirs in your heart this morning, it is all him, nothing to do with George, okay? And so that's what, I want to make that clear. And I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into our stories this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence. We ask that you would stir this morning, that you would mold us and transform us. I pray, Lord, that it would be your words and not mine. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, where do you go when life has become chaotic, complicated, and painful? We're going to look at the stories of three different mothers in Scripture. Now, the truth is, we could have gone outside of mothers. We could have done way more than three. But in order for you guys to get out of here at a decent time, we're going to look at three mothers. All right, I, could, I started with five, the five in the genealogy of Jesus, okay? But I narrowed it down to three and got rid of some of those. And Okay, so that's where we're at. Three mothers. We could have done more, but we're going to look at three. And, and I think that all of these mothers share a principle that I believe is applicable to each of us when life is complicated, chaotic, or painful. The first mother is Ruth. Now, I'm going to summarize the story of Ruth because we don't have time to, to go into the whole book this morning, okay? If you haven't read it, it's four chapters. It's an incredible story. Go read the book of Ruth, right? But it starts out with uh, Naomi, and Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law, and they have uh, moved from Israel, and now her daughters have grown up, and they have, uh, her sons have grown up, and they have married Moabite women, okay? So she's got her husband and her two sons, and they are, the sons are married to Moabite women who aren't Israelites, and then tragedy strikes. Her husband and both of her sons are killed. They're no longer there. They die. So now you've got a mother and two daughter-in-laws in an age where you have to be a part of a patriarch, a part of a clan in order to survive. 
So the, the outlook is not great. Naomi has lost everything. She changes her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. So you can imagine the course that her life has gone. She's at this all-time low. And so what she's going to do is she's going to go back home to her her homeland, and she tells her daughter-in-laws to go back to Moab. Go back there because you're young, you're still of childbearing years, you can find you a Moab man, and you can make a life for yourself, okay? Your life will be good, life will be comfortable, you'll be taken care of. That is your best chance not only to survive but to thrive I'm going to go back and hopefully barely get by until I die one of those daughter-in-law says you bet all right I'm going back I'm going I'm choosing that life I'm going to take that route the other one Ruth looks at Naomi and says, your God shall be my God and your people shall be my people. She says, I'm going to cling to my faith by clinging to you. She says, no, I'm not going to choose the comfortable life. I'm going to intentionally make my life more difficult by following God. She could have gone back to Moab. She could. She was young. There were suitors for her. She would have had a better life. It would have been better for her. But she chose to get rid of that comfort and to follow Naomi, to be there for her, to care for her, and to serve her. She deliberately made her life hard by serving her mother-in-law and putting her own needs on the back burner. Now, this is not what we do in our culture. In fact, this week is is Mother's Day week, right? And all week long, I saw commercials, I heard ads when listening to podcasts, and they're all like, you know what? Moms need a chance to forget about everything and just do self-care. Listen, I'm for self-care. But the problem is our culture has turned self-care into the goal, And over and over again, you're told, make sure you're comfortable, make sure you're happy, make sure your needs are met. It's all about you. And look, it's important that you have self-care. Don't hear that, okay? It's important that you take care of yourself. But the problem is when we begin neglecting others and putting ourselves above others, we're never going to find our way out of that chaotic, complicated, painful season. The way, that Na- the way that Ruth was able to move forward was by putting her, her needs after the needs of Naomi. The story moves forward, and, and the way they, that the Israelite law was set up is God knew, God knew that there was always going to be those around who were less fortunate. He, he knew that there was always going to be those around who were widows, who needed to be taken care of, who didn't have what they needed to survive and thrive. So he wrote into the Israel law that when you go out and you go to collect your wealth, you go to harvest your field, you are to leave the edges unharvested. You're to leave those edges so that those who are down on their luck, those who have been hit by hard life situations, those who are in the situation like Ruth and Naomi, they can come and they can actually glean from the edges of your field. They have a chance to live and survive because of the way that God wrote that into the Israelite law. So that's what Ruth is doing. She's out working, toiling, sweating, like life is hard. She's harvesting the edges of these fields, not just for herself, but also for Naomi, because she wants to see that Naomi and herself both are able to live and survive. And she's out there not looking to her own needs, not looking to to get a man, not looking to be successful, just caring for Naomi, simply following God and taking care of her widowed mother-in-law, even though she too was widowed. And in that moment, when she's out in that heat and she's harvesting those edges of that field, in walks Boaz, which 
incredible name, right? Like I really wanted to name a son Boaz. Wife was like, hard no. And then we didn't have any sons. So you know what? It worked out. Now I'm hoping to name a dog Boaz one day. We'll see. Okay. But it's an incredible name, right? <laughs> so Boaz, he, he's out in and he's obviously comes from wealth because it's his field and he has his workers and he's looking out over his field with his workers and then he sees Ruth. He's like, who is that? All right, that's the George paraphrase. Now, I, don't, I know we live in an Instagram age, right? So people, are, you know, they'll go to the gym and they'll take pictures and it looks like their life is all put together. But if you've ever done like hard yard work or you've been to the gym and you have to run to the grocery store, for you hope to not be seen, right? Face is red, clothes are, are torn, like you, you are not looking your best. And that's what Ruth is at, right? She's been working in this field, laboring with her hands, harvesting the edges, gleaning from these, the, the edges of the field. And that's when Boaz sees her and he notices her beauty. He looks out over his fields that, that he is responsible for, so we know he has wealth, and he sees Ruth. Ruth is not looking for a man. She's not looking to be rescued. She is looking only to serve and to love her mother-in-law. She was looking to fulfill her spiritual commitment, and Boaz notices her, and he notices her loyalty. He notices her service. He notices her love and care for Naomi, and he invites her to dinner with him and his other workers. Lots of things happen at this point in the story. We're not going to go into all of those things. Go read it, okay? But the results of this moment, the results of these things, is how we read about that in Ruth 4, verses 13 through 15. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. So life is hard. They've had a terrible tragedy strike them. They've suffered incredible loss that not only left them heartbroken, but also left them with little hope for survival. Definitely no chance to thrive. Ruth could have taken her own, taken this into her own hands and fixed the situation for herself and neglected Naomi. She could have left Naomi to that fate and chose to, uh, her selfless, but she chose her selfless service. She chose to trust the faithfulness of her husband and of her mother-in-law's God, not her own. She trusted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God honored her sacrifice and her faithfulness. In verse 17, we see that And then the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, He, a son, has been born to Naomi. And they named him Oped. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. And if you know the story of Scripture, Jesus comes from the line of David. Ruth is now one of five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And women were not listed in genealogies. But she has this honor because she chose Naomi over herself. She chose to serve Naomi's God over the gods of her people. Ruth didn't take it into her own hands, but she pursued 
she didn't pursue comfort. She didn't pursue her own well-being. She, had, she could have had a decent life with a Moabite man, but she would have missed out on Boaz, which means she would have missed out on Opeth, which means she would have missed out on being the line of David, which means she would have missed out on being in the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. All because she made the decision to put her comfort aside and serve God and her mother-in-law. She said, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And that's what marked Ruth's legacy. Our second mom comes from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, and her name is Hannah. Hannah is barren. She can't have children. This says the Lord has blocked her womb. Year after year, she tries to get pregnant. Year after year, she tries to have a child, which in this age, that's where your worth comes from. And so it's year after year, she's trying, year after year, she's attempting, and year after year, it's another no. It's another we can't have kids. It's another failure in the sight of those around us. And it's not just that that turmoil and that distress of not being able to get pregnant. It's also the fact that in her culture, she's literally ridiculed. They make fun of her and bully her because of this situation. This was incredibly painful, complicated, and chaotic. This is what uh, Hannah is experiencing And we see in verse 10 that she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on me, the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. But if you will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Through this pain and this distress, Hannah is brought to a place of complete surrender. And she says that if you will give me a son, I will turn around and give him right back to you. Sometimes God lets us go through tough times because of how it will shape us. Christianity is not about making your life great and getting everything you ever wanted. Christianity is about making you more like God. And we are formed in the greatest ways through the hardships that we faced. Uh, and, and studying this and also just studying parenting, I came across this um, the story of a, a lady who was labeled worst mom in America. Do you guys remember this? All right, she's a journalist that went viral many years ago, several years ago, right? And she was labeled the worst mom in America because her son... <laughs> I was like, I don't remember the ages, so don't quote me on those. He was like 10 or 11, and he wanted to learn how to get home from the subway in New York by himself. And she was like, okay. So she took him to Bloomingdale's. So it's, you can see it's not the worst part of New York. Okay, this is Bloomingdale's is upscale. Like she took him there. She went home one way and let him go home the other way by himself. Okay, I wouldn't do this. Full transparency. Okay, terrifying. But the son really wanted to, and so he said, okay. And she went home and she waited and eventually he made it home. He said he got lost a couple of times. He had to ask a stranger a couple of questions, but he made his way home. And so being a journalist, she wrote about it. The story went viral. She got the name Worst Mom in America, right? But the point she was trying to make, and she's written a couple of books and she's actually started a couple of organizations, and she's trying to warn against the helicopter parent the overprotecting of parents, which I get, okay? And uh, she tells a story about a group of boys. There's like three or four of them. 
and they were walking to this empty lot where they were going to play some kind of ball, football, baseball, something like that. And they were out there by themselves, and somebody called the police because there's this group of boys out there playing by themselves. And the parents were contacted and actually got tickets for negligence. I spent so many times playing by myself with, <laughs> and so this is kind of shocked me. But as she, and I think that's the reason she tells the story. But she talks about how in these moments of unsupervised play is when kids learn vital lessons to life, like how to disagree, how to stick up for the ones that are less, that are uh, smaller, maybe getting beat on, beat up on, or picked on, or they experience the toughness of life and they learn how to deal with these different obstacles. And, and she makes a, some really great points about how when we overparent, we try to step in and protect that kids miss out on growth opportunities. And this was convicting to me because like five minutes earlier, the girls were bickering about something. And instead of letting them sort it out, I got tired of the whining and I stepped in and solved the problem for them. And over and over again, I've learned that we can't just step in and solve the problem because it's in those tough times where they learn how to disagree, where they learn how to find a solution and love each other, even though they might disagree on something. And she actually ties it into another book that, um, that is on my to-read list, but it talks about college campuses and how students in, in our day and age are unable to listen to a differing opinion. They feel triggered or hurt or, or upset if somebody disagrees with them, and so they find ways to either not participate in that class, get that professor fired. They do different things because if someone disagrees, I don't know how to handle that. And so there's this correlation, and this is all to illustrate that there are many times in our life where God lets us be in tough situations because it's in those tough situations that we are formed, that we are like Christ, where he transforms us. Hannah is in this place where she desperately wants a son for her own glory so that she can be accepted for her own, to be a part of this community. And, And through this moment, it says that God blocked her womb. And she gets to a place where she is ready to surrender this son. To, as soon as she gets it, she gives him back to God. And Samuel is this son, growing up to be one of the greatest prophets. He is the last prophet before the Israelite becomes a king nation where they have King Saul. He's the one that anoints David in the house of Jesse. This is all Samuel, and this is all because Hannah got to a place where she was willing to give Samuel right back to God. Verse 19 says that they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah and Elkanah and knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hannah goes through this hard experience and comes to a place of complete surrender. This thing that she longed for, her own son, that, but she declares that he won't belong to her, but rather to God. And she is willing to take this son that she has longed for and give him completely to God. She removes her self-interest from the scenario and vows to give her son in complete service to God. And it's in that place of complete surrender that it says the Lord remembers Hannah. Not only does she have Samuel, she goes on to have more sons and more daughters. He remembers her over and over again. The third mother that we're going to look at is Nameless. She is the widow of Serapath. And this comes from 1 Kings chapter 17. It says this in verses 8 through 16. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Serapath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And she called up to her, and he called up to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we might eat it and die. She's going to prepare her last meal. They're, they're in this, the land is in a famine, right? They're in a drought. So the, the, the money has run dry. There's no way to provide for her family. She's a widow. They, they have no way to get food. They've come to the end of their road. There's nothing left in the land. The whole land is suffering. You could say that the banks have handed out bad loans and the housing market has crashed, right? COVID-19 has come and created problems. In, okay, sorry, I got a little mixed up there. All right, times were tough. Times were tough, and she's going to prepare her last meal. She has nothing left. She's about to starve to death with her son, and Elijah has the audacity to say, bring me some food. She's like, bro, I don't have anything. But he's persistent, and he said to her, verse 13, do not fear. Go and do as I have said. He pushes back. Listen, I know you don't have anything. Do it anyway. Go and do as I have said, but first make me a little cake and of it, bring it to me. And afterwards make something for yourself and son. She, he says, don't fear. Let me get some food. She's like, no, no, no. I don't think you heard me. We haven't got anything. He says, do not fear. Verse 14 says, for thus says the Lord, your God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. There's hope coming. The famine is coming to an end. The Lord is going to send rain. And if you can provide this food for me, your situation will be reversed. You will have flour and you will have oil until the day the Lord sends that rain. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she said, and she she and her son and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, and neither did the jug become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. She thought to herself, this Elijah has to be crazy. Why would he command me to give the last of what I have to feed him in times like this? But she listened to Elijah. She listened to his command to reverse her way of thinking, to put someone else above herself. And in that moment, Elijah Elijah blessed her and she was taken care of. She recklessly gave away what she had and God used it to bless Elijah and multiplied what she had to sustain her and her son throughout the drought. If she would have leaned on practicality, if she would have had the thought, I don't have enough, it won't last, this is not going to work, she would have not only missed out on the miracle, but she would have missed out on life herself because this was the end of her supply. But she listened to Elijah's command to reverse her priorities. And she listened to his, and God blessed her and changed her situation. 
That's our three mothers. So what's the principle? What's the principle? What do these three mothers have in common that is a life lesson for all of us here today? In all three of these mothers' situations, they had to minister to someone else in order for their crisis to change. In order for their crisis to change, they had to make a spiritual decision to be others-oriented. Taking us to our verse, this principle is laid out beautifully by Jesus in Luke 6.38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be poured into your lap. For the, for the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Many of us know this verse. We love this verse because the sound of that blessing, it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured in your lap. Come on, let it rain, Lord. I need that provision. Let it fall on me. We love that promise that it is going to be given to us. But this promise, this blessing comes in a long line of very difficult teaching from Jesus. Things like love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer also the other. Judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned, forgive and you will be forgiven. And then we read, give and it will be given to you. So often we find ourselves in a place where we want God to provide. We want God to deliver. We want God to to save us, to fix this situation that we're in. But sometimes God has us right where we are on purpose. Not because he loves to see us in agony, but because he is all about advancing his kingdom and molding and forming his children. He is transforming us. And we will never find our way out of these circumstances until we let go of our selfishness and show the love of God to those he has placed around us. We don't, we don't serve a God of scarcity. We serve a loving father who wants the best for us and is willing to let us become the best version of ourselves, even if we have to learn it the hard way. Whether you're a mother or not, whether you don't, have, don't want kids or you're trying desperately to have them, whether you had a great mother, a terrible mother, or an okay mom, whether today you celebrate with your mom or you're remembering her, if you're on the mountaintop or if you're in the valley, you serve a God that is with you and wants the best for you. He is near, and sometimes the best way to know that he is near is by emptying ourselves to serve him and those he has put around us. This is what he did first. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He knew, this is that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He emptied himself, healing people that were just there to get healed. They didn't care about following Jesus. They were just there to get healed. Jesus went to the cross knowing that people would turn their back on him, that they wouldn't trust him, that they wouldn't follow him, but he emptied himself. Yet while we were still sinners, he went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins. Jesus led by example. These three mothers are great stories about how we put others before our ourselves, but God doesn't ask us to do something that he hasn't already done. Jesus gave his life on the cross so that you and I could have life. It starts with Jesus. He's the one that enters in our life. The Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out when we are made holy in him. That's how we put others above ourselves. Mothers do this so often. So often, mothers are the backbone of a family, serving and loving their spouses, serving and loving their kids. 
And I think we can follow in the example of those mothers and the example of these mothers that we've talked about today, that we can put others above ourselves and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you led by example. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you give us your spirit, that we can go in in the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of the chaoticness of our life when things are complicated, and that even in those tough moments, that we can put others above ourselves. Let us be a people who are marked by our service to your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.